Welcome to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. This podcast mini-series from Sierra Club BC explores our transition to a world powered by clean energy. Hi, I'm Susan Elrington with Caitlin Vernon from Sierra Club BC. This podcast is recorded in Victoria on Lekwungen Territory. There are a lot of different perspectives on what clean energy means here in BC and what kinds of energy sources can truly help us get to a post-carbon economy that works for all people and is good for our climate. And in this episode, we'll talk about what makes energy clean or not and what the urgency of climate change means for government plans for this transition. You may be surprised to hear that some people think we should slow down a little, and it may not be who you think would be saying that. But first, Caitlin, why don't we start with a little recap of recent developments related to energy in BC? Yeah, so the first, of course, is is that our federal government bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline and Tankers project and uh, wants to see it built, while at the same time trying to convince us that this tar sands pipeline will somehow be a, a good thing for our climate and, and for this coast. Um, Another thing that's happened was that LNG Canada got permission to build an enormous LNG fracked gas plant in Kitimat, which would be a massive increase in fracking and put a fracked gas pipeline across northern BC, um, with both BC and the feds saying that this is somehow clean energy. A third thing that's happened is that the provincial government has laid out its vision for reducing carbon pollution and for transitioning to clean energy in BC. Well, it's really good to have a government that's envisioning a clean energy future, but a pipeline and a frack gas plant seem pretty incompatible with that. They are. I mean, it's it's actually totally absurd. It's like trying to dig a hole at the same time as you're filling the hole. And so that's why we realized we needed to go back to the basics in this podcast and talk about what is clean energy and what isn't. Some people think of it as renewable energy only. Others have a different understanding. And Caitlin, we visited Haida Gwaii last fall to join more than 100 people gathered in a community hall to talk about renewable energy, things like solar and wind and tidal power. I had my microphone on, and even with that big room sound, I wanted you to hear the great answers they came up with when they were asked what renewable energy means to them. Self-sufficiency, local, freedom, a light footprint on the earth, Empowerment, balance, money that stays on the island. We all understand money. Jobs, a green economy, savings, security, accountability, independence, not having to pay for sight see. Yeah, let's work with all those other First Nations and make change. Showing people it can be done. Collaboration. So we heard there that clean energy means different things to different people. But for the purposes of this podcast, we need to be on the same page. So for Sierra Club BC, Caitlin, what is clean energy? Simply put, clean energy doesn't create carbon pollution. So it's not fossil fuels, it's not oil, it's not gas, it's not coal. The whole reason that we need a transition to clean energy is because of the climate crisis. The climate is changing. And to stop making it worse, we need to be leaving fossil fuels in the ground. Okay, so let's play a little game here. I'll say an energy source. You tell me if it's considered clean. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Solar. Yes. There are issues around the manufacturing process, for example, in making the lithium batteries. There's some concerns around pollution there. Um, But once they're up and running, solar panels don't emit carbon pollution as they're creating electricity. So that makes it clean, renewable energy. Wind? 
Yes. The steel used to make wind turbines is often made from metallurgical coal, so there's a real impact there from the coal mining. However, once in operation, they don't pollute. Biomass. Right. So what is biomass? Biomass can be any plant material or organic matter that's burned to generate energy. And whether it's clean or not is a little less straightforward. So I asked Jens Wieting, Sierra Club BC's senior forest and climate campaigner, is biomass clean? That really depends on a number of questions. So it depends on where does it come from? What would have happened to the biomass without this intervention? How much are we removing? How is it burned? And a number of other questions. Biomass can be part of the solution, but it can quickly become part of the problem if we um, have too big a role for biomass. It must be limited. It must be within... Um, coherent framework for our forests. Overall, we have to make sure that our forests remain intact, that they continue to sequester carbon. If we use it, we have to make sure that it's happening in a clean way using modern technology, and then it can play a helpful role, but it must be within a careful um, planning context making sure that we take a look at all available alternatives, solar, wind, geothermal, to make sure that we have the best possible mix. Okay, Caitlin, another energy source, geothermal. Clean or not clean? Clean. Geothermal is a process of converting heat generated from the Earth's core into energy. And as long as it's not what's called enhanced geothermal, which goes deeper and maybe more similar to fracking, it's clean. Next one. Tidal power, clean or not clean? Clean, especially with new technologies that remove the need to use fossil fuels to run the water turbines. And we're going to learn more about that when we visit Haida Gwaii in our next episode. Okay, next. Hydro? Site C is on our minds. Small-scale hydro is generally clean. However, when it gets into larger run-of-river hydro projects, those can have negative impacts on river ecosystems. And when we're talking big dams like Site C, then the costs are really high. For example, there's methane emissions, there's loss of, of land that can be farmed, and there's the displacement of people. Um, when the dams on the Columbia River system were put in, they blocked salmon from returning upriver, which was a huge blow to the Tanaha, the Okanagan, and the Sequetmik indigenous nations who depended on the salmon for food and as a key part of their culture. So basically, I think what we're hearing here is that any source of energy has some impact on the environment, even the ones that are mostly clean, which then raises the question of where is the energy going and how much energy is really needed so that we only build out new energy sources for what's truly needed. And in the case of the Site C Dam, the electricity is intended to provide cheap, subsidized power to fracking and LNG companies, so that's definitely not clean. Okay, so that brings us to the $40 billion question. Is LNG, or frac gas, clean? Well, that's what the proponents would like you to think, but we don't agree. So last fall, the government did announce a $40 billion LNG plant for Kitimat. I want you to listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau making that announcement. LNG Canada will have the lowest carbon density of any large-scale LNG facility in the world. We know LNG produces about half the amount of carbon emissions as coal. So by sending Canadian LNG to markets that are today powered by coal, we will help those jurisdictions transition away from this energy source. 
<clears throat> there will come a day when traditional energy sources will give way to clean energy sources, just as LNG is now replacing coal. So, Caitlin, is he right? Is LNG clean? The key point to consider here is that when you factor in the emissions from fracking, LNG can be as dirty as coal. And this is really important because the BC government is promoting LNG as if it's better than oil or diesel. For example, they're suggesting a switch to LNG for for larger marine vessels like ferries. Um, Zoe Yunker is the co-founder of the BC LNG Network. And Sue, I know you spoke to her recently and asked her why LNG isn't really cleaner than oil or gas. When government tells us that natural gas uh, and the LNG that is produced from it is clean, we're just not getting the full story. And so the reality is that it's true that when you burn uh, natural gas, it produces about half as much uh, emissions as coal. But that's only one part of the life cycle, of course, right? So when we are looking at LNG, we're looking at natural gas. You need natural gas to produce LNG. Um, and to produce natural gas in British Columbia, we need to do hydraulic fracturing. Uh, and before it's burned, natural gas is made of methane. And so when we integrate methane into that equation, it is found to be as emissions intensive as coal production, if not more, actually. How are we going to meet our emissions targets if there's that many more tons of carbon in the atmosphere? Yeah, well, in a nutshell, we can't. <laughs> There's no way of doing it. Um, the LNG Canada project alone would create almost enough emissions to blow our entire carbon budget by 2050 that the province has set. Um, and so that leaves a margin that is so small that there is literally no plan that shows us how we're going to reduce our emissions to that extent. So you talked there about this notion of transitioning off fossil fuels. And we heard in the clip earlier, Justin Trudeau kind of set this up as LNG may not be the answer for the future, but it's, it's a clean energy answer for right now. It's a transition fuel. Is it a good transition fuel, if that's the case? It is not, unfortunately. Well, why not? So even if we bracket this whole discussion around LNG being cleaner than coal or not cleaner than coal, question remains, do we need a fossil fuel to transition off of another fossil fuel? And the answer really is no. Like, we are expanding renewables technology across the globe. It's becoming more and more affordable and providing a viable option to fossil fuels. Um, and we have an option here. We can invest about we could take that $40 billion and invest it in renewable energy technology that would actually support people now rather than creating a problem of locked-in infrastructure that we have to deal with later. So Zoe makes the case that LNG isn't really clean from an emissions point of view. And it's worth noting that um, Washington state just banned fracking entirely, with the governor saying that because of climate change, the state should be focusing on clean renewable energy, not fossil fuels. And then we also need to mention here a couple of other compelling reasons that LNG is not an option for, you know, a renewable, sustainable future. And foremost among them is a serious dispute over pipelines that would connect the fracking fields to the LNG export terminals on the coast. That's right. The hereditary leadership of the Wet'suwet'en Nation in northern BC are adamantly opposed to any oil or gas pipeline going through their territory. 
Yeah, and Caitlin, we recently spoke with Molly Wickham. She's the spokesperson of the Gidendem clan of Wet'suwet Nation. And she's on the front lines of that fight to keep the pipeline out. Currently, pipeline development is uh, in pre-construction stages. And so there's a lot of clear, clear-cut logging that's happening, a lot of surveying, a lot of people out on the territory that don't belong on the territory and that are trespassing on the territory. So it's really limiting the access of Wet'suwet'en people in our traditional use of the territories, as well as increased RCMP presence. And once the pipeline is built, if it is built, What does that do to the way you use the land and the way the people who live there use the land? It would essentially prevent us from, um, it would prevent us from practicing a lot of our traditional activities. So I actually live out on the territory with my family. I have two small children and my husband and I have built a cabin out on our territory. And so that's our safe place to be where we can actually teach our children. We homeschool them according to our seasonal round. And so those activities that we do on the territory, like hunting and harvesting medicines and picking berries and basically teaching them how to be self-sustainable and all the skills that are required to do that, um, we wouldn't be able to go and access those places anymore. Um, We would have an increased influx of hundreds of foreign men, workers in our territories. It wouldn't be safe to go out on the territory. Currently, even in pre-construction stages in 2015, we couldn't access the sites that we normally access. Um, It sure wasn't safe to bring our children around because the security guards and the RCMP are very aggressive. Um, It's not safe. You don't know if you're going to be pulled over, ticketed, or arrested on a day-to-day basis. So it's already impacting uh, how we access our territories. And if it were to actually go through, many of our areas would actually just be blocked off. There would be gates put across the road and we just would have no access whatsoever. What's clear to me after listening to Molly and Zoe is that there's many concerns about liquefied fracked gas that that make it not clean, such as the impacts to our climate, as well as on drinking water, and also the ways that the infrastructure is making it impossible and really unsafe for Indigenous peoples to be at home in their own lands. Caitlin, Zoe talked about how LNG isn't a transition fuel, and this notion of transition fuels is kind of interesting. Yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, according to government scientists from around the world, we have less than 11 years to transition to renewable energy. And that means we simply don't have the luxury of time anymore. Burning fossil fuels that don't emit as much as other fossil fuels is no longer really an option. We need to be going straight to renewables. Well, you're bringing up the urgency of this transition. We'll talk more about that in just a moment here on Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. So my name is Gordon Stewart. I'm a brand new member of the board. I live in South Surrey. Uh, I've had a long and abiding interest in environment. And uh, I've joined the Sierra Club because I see it as an organization that um, really gets the job done on the ground. Uh, I think so many of us know what the problems are. At least we have a good enough understanding of the problems. The question is, what do we do about it? And with Sierra Club, I feel I'm part of a large group of people who have come together to make changes and take action, and that, that to me is what it's all about. Come out to an event, um, just get to know us, and uh, don't be shy. 
You're listening to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. Now, Caitlin, just before the break, you referred to the urgency to move to clean energy now. Why are we hearing so much recently about this urgency? Do you remember, Sue, last fall, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is scientists from countries around the world, it's known as the IPCC, Mm -hmm. released a report about the consequences if we're not able to stay below 1.5 degrees warming. If we go beyond 1.5 degrees of warming, we're going to see even more uh, extreme weather events, things like rising sea level, dying coral, coral reefs, and also more of the massive species extinction that's taking place around the world as a result of climate change. So the IPCC has said that we can stay below 1.5 degrees warming. In fact, it is scientifically possible, but it's going to require political will. So how is the BC government doing when it comes to responding to this urgency of climate change? The BC government has taken some excellent steps in the right direction, and yet more is needed. So what are they doing? The government has legislated targets for reducing climate pollution, which is really important. And it sounds good until you realize that, in fact, we need to be reducing our carbon pollution much further and much faster than what they're planning if we want to stay within the 1.5 degrees warming that the IPCC recommends. And you referred earlier in the podcast to the BC government's release of its plan for clean energy. Yeah, the government has laid out its Clean BC plan for transitioning to clean energy in buildings, transportation, and industry. They're advocating and making possible things like more electric cars, more heat efficiency in buildings. We heard about that a lot in the last podcast series. um, And reducing carbon emissions from industry. And those are all really good things, really needed. and And it's great to see the BC government moving in this direction. And at the same time, for many people who who really follow what's happening with climate change around the world, it's not nearly enough. When I read through them, I just my whole spirit just sank through the floor. They're so timid. That's Guy Dauncey. Guy lives, eats, and breathes climate change. He's written two books on the subject and speaks across the country about the urgency of climate change. And I spoke to him at his home near Ladysmith about the BC government's clean energy plan. They talk about the bright energy with clean, the bright future with clean energy. But when you look into the details, there's nothing there that shows any understanding of the urgency of this crisis. Nothing in the realm of policy allows you to go to the Arctic and order the methane to stop escaping, order the ice to stop melting. And now is the time we still have, you know, some flexibility, and we we need a real urgency of of commitment in the policies and the, the things we do. With that in mind. Why do you think the government isn't moving faster? Some of them really get it, and some of them are tied to the belief that the the economy is more important and and all that sort of stuff. The fact that they have just approved this massive investment in liquefied natural gas, which which is a disaster for climate impacts, they at some level just don't get it. Simple as that. You can't do a rapid transition to clean energy without investment. And investment means jobs. It means economic change. So it's all you know, better to put that investment into stuff that's going to reduce carbon emissions and not increase them. So what would you like to see coming from the government now? Well, fundamentally, we need a commitment to 100% renewable energy for the province, which means you don't just set a goal for 2030. You, set a, you have a yearly breakdown. So in, this, in the year 2019... We will achieve this, this, and this. And the ministers and the staff responsible have 
either salary cuts tied to it or salary bonuses tied to it. Back in the 1890s, the crisis in the world's, in Europe's cities was horse manure on the streets, piling up and piling up. And people were concerned about disease and this, that, the other. By 2020, by 1920, 30 years later, we changed from horses to cars without any big hassle or problem. We changed from, you know, clunky old landlines to cell phones without any big problem. We can change from oil and gas to renewable energy without any big hassle. It's just a transition. We need to say thank you to all the workers who've worked in the coal mines and worked in the tar sands and worked in fossil fuels and make sure they have the training to move into electric vehicles, into wind energy, into solar energy, into the other forms of energy that are appropriate for the change. Now, the, the comparison I use on that one is that when... In 1961, I believe, President Kennedy announced that Americans were going to land on the moon by 1970, within 10 years. They had no idea how they were going to get there. They just had determination and skill and investment, and they made it happen. So when you make that commitment, all sorts of people come alive, and university research departments dig in and get stuff happening, and they do prototypes, and they research things, and they make mistakes, and they try stuff out. And there's a whole thing happening to make this transition happening rapidly. But there is hope. Well, we're in a period now of transition, so I, I don't personally operate on optimism or pessimism. I operate on determination, and the alternative to that is defeat. You're determined to do whatever you can, like a player in the last period of a hockey game. You may be losing in the last period. You're still playing your guts out, right? And there's so many things we can do. So I, what I say to everyone is you, don't just listen to this podcast. You know, get engaged with the Sierra Club. Say, I want to volunteer. What can I do? And, you know, get engaged. That was Guy Dauncey. Guy is a climate change activist. You heard an abridged interview just now, and you can find the full interview on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca. And, Caitlin, Guy makes a strong case that now is the time to act. He does, and the, and the science is very clear that the, that there is urgency around responding to climate change and, and that we need to hurry up. And yet, at the same time, some Indigenous peoples are saying, wait a minute, maybe we need to slow down. And everyone just take a breath. <laughs> and Sue, I know you spoke to Emily Gilpin about this. Hello, my name is Emily Gilpin. I am Machif through and through, which means mixed. I'm Cree Métis and settler. And I'm also a journalist with National Observer. Uh, I lead a series called First Nations Forward, which is focused on stories of success, uh, sustainable land and water management, and self-determination in First Nations communities across BC. In the course of her work, Emily speaks with hundreds of Indigenous people about this transition to clean energy. And I was surprised when she told me about one activist who's raising a red flag about acting too hastily in the name of urgency. Kyle Powis White is an Indigenous philosopher and a climate scientist. He's a Anishinaabe and a member of the Potawatomi Nation. And um, yeah, he had some really, really interesting things to say around the weakness of climate change advocacy when when it's so focused on being urgent and rushing and there's a crisis and he said that's actually not good for indigenous peoples. Why isn't it good for indigenous peoples? It doesn't leave time for relationships. Um, When you're rushing around and you're trying to push policies and make decisions but you don't have ethical and just relationships with indigenous peoples um, in many cases indigenous peoples are the ones that are living more intimately with land and waters and you know 
non-human relatives as well, then they're going to be affected by decisions that are made that don't have their consent, don't have their, you know, a relationship that's based on ethical realities. So how does that play out? Mm -hmm. He cited a few different uh, reports, such as a UN uh, forest degradation report, which was talking about um, people getting money for the preservation of forests, but he was saying where you have forests, you have indigenous peoples. So again, there are decisions that are being made in a paternalistic way that don't have the consent of indigenous peoples. And people are pushing at, you know, urgency in their climate change advocacy. We need to make these decisions. We need to roll out these programs because the time is now. Um, but that's actually quite nonsensical because as we know, uh, you know, indigenous peoples have 5% of the world's population but protect 80% of the world's biodiversity. So if you want to talk about protecting biodiversity and talk about protecting the planet, then talk to the people who are doing that and have been doing that since time immemorial. But if you're rushing around and you're making these decisions, there's no time for ethical and just relationships to be built. So I, I know you've been doing some thinking about this concept of time. So what do you think we should be paying attention to specifically, especially when it comes to Indigenous knowledge about environmental stewardship? Mm. Well, it can be said about climate change advocacy. It could be said about the climate of journalism. It could be said about many things, but um, we need to change our thinking around time. I think, you know, a colonial conception of time, and, and Kyle talked about this as well, maybe looks at the last 100 or 200 years, you know, as saying this is when I'm considering things as a starting point and therefore we have progressed because if I start here and I go to here, then we're progressed. And not only is that such a short, nearsighted um, conception of time, it also is a linear conception of time. Whereas when you look at different conceptions of time, different cultural, you know, worldviews around time, time was treated and related to as more seasonally. Right? And maybe looking at the last thousand or two thousand or ten thousand years, and what can we learn from the ways that our cultures and worldviews and relationships have changed in that time as well? And when we do that, the possibilities are endless, and it changes that sense of urgency. Um, you know, when you look at where we've come in just the last hundred years, it is concerning. There is a genuine concern there, and I think any way that you look at time, that's real. But what I think it does is it opens up our our imagination to solutions. So this question of urgency and how we somehow need to both hurry up and slow down at the same time is something we all need to grapple with and think about as we go forward with this transition. Emily has really given us lots to think about. Yeah, she has. And it's also clear, Caitlin, that there aren't easy answers to some of these big questions. But what is clear is that we can't stand still. And communities all over BC want to act now. So in our next episode, we'll look at what they can do to transition to clean energy. We visited Haida Gwaii where they're very serious about moving away from a reliance on diesel power to sustainable renewable energy and doing so in a way grounded in Haida ways of knowing, which in fact might be the speeding up and slowing down at the same time. It could be, as, as Emily was saying. And we talked to a lot of people on Haida Gwaii about the solutions that they see for their community. Yeah, it was super inspiring, and I can't wait to share this story with our listeners. At Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond is a podcast miniseries produced by Sierra Club BC. You can subscribe to it at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast or on your favorite podcast app. And if you like our podcast, please share it with friends and family and 
By the way, give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. The more reviews, the more exposure, and that really helps us spread the word. You can also let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by tagging us at Sierra Club BC. This podcast is made possible by funding from the North Growth Foundation and Sierra Club BC supporters. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from Sierra Club BC, please consider making a donation. It's easy to do on our website at, again, sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon. Our thanks to Kat Zimmer at Sierra Club BC for her invaluable assistance with producing and publishing this podcast. And thank you for listening.